At Wildwood Community Church, we are for following Jesus together to the glory of God. We're for the church, for the community, for the nations, and for the next generation. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. Today we're going to be continuing a sermon series we began last Sunday called The Lord of New Heaven and Earth. A sermon series that is anchored in the last four pages in uh, our Bibles, the last four chapters of the Bible in Revelation 19 through 22. Now, if you've been with us all year, you know that we've had a number of sermon series out of the book of Revelation that have shown us that the book of Revelation is a revelation of who? It's a revelation of Jesus Christ. And specifically in these verses, we are reminded that Jesus is the Lord of the future the Lord of the new heaven and the new earth, the eternal location where you and I, if we have trusted in him, will get to spend eternity. And so it's important for us to look at these verses together and to study them. We kicked off that study last week, and today we're going to be in part two of that series, looking at Revelation 19, verses 11 to 21. But before we unpack those verses, I want to just do a quick survey. And with this survey, I want you to to actually answer, and you're going to vote or respond by raising a hand, okay? So that's true for those in the room. Also, if you're watching with us online, do this in your living room or wherever you are right now. So the questions are these. First question in this survey, how many of you have ever heard a sermon about Christmas? Raise your hand. Okay, many, many hands going up there, right? Christmas, uh, the account of Jesus' first coming to this world and his birth in Bethlehem. Now, the second question is this. How many of you have heard a sermon about Jesus' second coming, specifically in the most central passage of the New Testament on this topic, Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 21? How many of you have heard a sermon there? Okay, many hands, but not quite as many. So the question I want to ask is this, why is it that that we have heard so much about the first coming of Christ and yet have somewhat neglected conversation about his second coming? Is it because God says a lot more about Jesus' birth in Bethlehem than he does about his second coming? The answer to that is no. As a matter of fact, our Bibles are are full of more information about the second coming than they are full of information about the first. Remember, not even all four Gospels include the account in Bethlehem. And yet there are as many as eight to one references of the second coming to references of the first. So God wants us to know something about the second coming of Jesus. What does he want us to know? Well, hopefully today, as we read these verses and unpack them together, we will come to understand why this event, this future event, is so significant that it might impact the way we live our lives today and the hope that we have for tomorrow. So let's dive in and look at Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 to 21. Now, Admittedly, these verses take place in some of the last pages in our Bible. Our Bible has thousands of pages in it, and yet we're starting here at the very end. And so lest we just find out the conclusion without understanding the tension, I think it's important for us to review all of what the Scripture 
has to say. I want us to begin there. Otherwise, we might see the Death Star explode and not know the reason for the new hope. So let's go back, and and, and there's like three people from the 80s. Thank you. All right, so... Let's, let's look a little more closely. Let's look a little more closely at these events and let's be reminded of their context inside of human history. What in the world is going on? The, the ambitious topic, human history in brief. Well, human history begins in the book of Genesis. And the very first verse of the Bible says this, God has always been. In the beginning, God In the time that we know of as the beginning, God already was. Everything we know is created except God. That's a foundational concept. And what did God do? Well, God created. God created the universe. God created earth. And God created this special creation of humanity. He created us in his image. He created us on purpose. He didn't have to. He created us on purpose, and he created us for a purpose. That purpose is to reflect his glory and to live in relationship with him. This is found in this central passage of Genesis 1 verses 26 and 27. And though God created humanity for that purpose, something awful happened very quickly. And that awful thing that happened was that humanity sinned and fellowship with God was broken. We see this in Genesis chapter 3 as Adam and Eve sinned in the garden. And there were consequences that came. They found their relationship with each other broken. They found their relationship with God broken. But also we find a glimmer of hope. And in those very first days when sin first enters the world, God lets us know that he has a rescue plan to rescue his people and to restore fellowship with himself. He described it in this way. He said, one day the seed of the woman will come along and crush the head of that evil snake. There was a rescue plan that was to come. Now this plan begins to gain more clarity through this guy named Abraham. When God comes to Abraham and he says, Abraham, through you and your descendants, my blessing, my restoration, my rescue plan will flow. One day, a descendant of Abraham would provide a path for worldwide blessing. God reiterated that in Genesis chapter 12. Not only did God reiterate that rescue plan there, but then the rest of the Old Testament is just an opportunity for us to learn more about us and more about God. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 24, it says that the Old Testament law was a tutor to lead us or prepare us for Christ. In the Old Testament law, we see how holy God is, and we see how sinful we are, and we understand our need to be rescued, our need for a Savior. Well, if this is the Old Testament account, what happens in the New Testament? Well, in the New Testament, we see Jesus coming, and Jesus came to serve and to save. Jesus provided a mission statement for his life and ministry in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, when he said that the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He served us by teaching us in our ignorance. He served us by revealing in three dimensions what God was really like. He served us by feeding the hungry and by healing the sick and by demonstrating the compassion of God towards his creation. But not only did Jesus serve in those ways, But Jesus also gave his life as a ransom for our sins. 
This happened when he went to the cross and he died on the cross and then he rose from the grave. An event that happened in history at the end of the gospel accounts, an event that is so significant that the very first Christian sermon that is ever preached after Jesus' resurrection, when Peter takes the stage at Pentecost, he is talking about the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus and inviting all to repent of their sin and to trust in Christ for their hope for all time. This is the pivotal events that came with Jesus' first coming. Not only, though, do we see that, but we see after Jesus' resurrection, after spending 40 days with his disciples, he ascends into heaven. And when he ascends into heaven, he sends the Spirit to come and inhabit the lives of his followers so that they might be a part of this global church who would be compelled to go into the world everywhere they go and to tell all the nations about how they might be connected to God through Christ as well. This is the era in which we are now living, and it's described in its mission and scope in Acts 1.8. Now, not only that, but we see before Jesus' ascension, we see promises that he is going to return. Jesus said, I'm leaving, but I'm coming back one day. A promise that was clarified even by the angels who witnessed Jesus' ascension. Something we'll look at a little later on this morning when they promise that Jesus indeed will come back and will establish a kingdom, not someplace, but in this place. Jesus' kingdom will come to earth. But we also are reminded that Jesus said that there will be a period of great tribulation on the earth that will happen in the days just before he returns. He mentions this in Matthew chapter 24, and the length of that period of great tribulation is defined for us in Daniel chapter 9 to a period of seven years. So this is the the scope of the Old and the New Testament. But I want us to zoom in now about what is happening in the book of Revelation, Because the book of Revelation, in many ways, talks about what is happening in those last seven years in that period of great tribulation before Jesus returns to the earth. We see in those last seven years that this big event happens, and that is the rapture of the church. We see Jesus appearing in the clouds and inviting his followers, you and me, if we're alive on the earth at that time, to be connected with him in heaven so that we might be spared the judgment upon the earth that is to come. And after the church is removed, then there, is, there are three waves of judgment that come upon the earth as Jesus judges the earth for its unrighteousness and for its rejection of him. We see this in the wave of seal judgments and trumpet judgments and bowl judgments in Revelation chapter 6 through 18, verses we looked at earlier this year. Now, in the midst of all of that, God judges the earth in these waves, friends, I believe in part because he wants to give people an opportunity to repent. And repent, some do. Certainly, some from the nation of Israel will realize they missed their Messiah at his first coming and will repent in those last days. But also people from other nations as well will repent and become connected to Christ and will be alive on the earth during that tribulation era, something we see in Revelation chapter 7 and chapter 11. The armies of the world, led by the Antichrist though, will not be happy about that. 
and they will unite together in order to wipe out the Jesus movement once and for all. And they will gather to wipe out the Jesus movement once and for all at this little place called Armageddon. Armageddon describes a region, an area in Israel near the town of Megiddo. And there is a valley just below Armageddon, the Mount of of Megiddo. There's a valley there that is sufficient for an army to gather, to stage a battle. And in the last days, Revelation chapter 16 tells us that that army will gather there as they prepare to go and attack the people of God who are residing in Jerusalem at that time. They will approach Jerusalem and they will surround it so that they might smoke it out and stamp out the movement of God. This is what is talked about in Revelation chapter 14, as well as in Zechariah chapter 14, verses 1 and 2. And so this is the point that we come to in Revelation chapter 19, verse 11. The church removed. The earth has been judged in three waves of judgment. The people of God are holed up in Jerusalem, and they are surrounded by the enemies of God who are wanting to take them out. And then the events of Revelation 19 happen. So with that set up, let's look at these verses together. Revelation 19, verse 11. Then then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron." He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of the kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him, who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh." Now, friends, in these verses, given this setup, I want us to see two important truths today. So what are those truths? The first truth is this. Jesus comes back. Jesus comes back. How excited am I about this concept? There are multiple exclamation points on the screen. So let's say that together. Jesus comes back. Friends, Jesus is coming back to this world. Now, earlier in Revelation, we saw a door opened in heaven and the apostle John was invited to go up and describe what he saw there. 
But in Revelation 19, it, the door to heaven is opened, but it's not for John to come up. As John MacArthur reminds us, heaven opens this time not to let John in, but to let Jesus out. Jesus opens the door and says, I am coming to the earth. I am coming back just as I said. Jesus is coming back. Now, what is the timing of him coming back? Well, Jesus is coming back at that moment, remember, when Jerusalem is under siege, when the people of God are holed up in this city and they are being smoked out by enemy armies that have surrounded them with reinforcements down in the valley of Megiddo. Zechariah chapter 14 describes the scene this way. It says, in that moment when the city is under siege, the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. Who's doing the fighting? The Lord will go out and fight. On that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley, so that one half of the mount shall move north, the other half south. And you shall flee to the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach to us all. And you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. The city is under siege. It's surrounded. How will they escape? Jesus comes, boom, lands on the mountain just outside of town and splits the mountain in two, creating a valley of escape for the people of God. What timing, what drama, right, in that moment. Now, this is something that is really going to happen. And it's really going to happen at the location of the Mount of Olives. Now, why the Mount of Olives? Remember these verses in Acts chapter 1, verse 11 and 12? Jesus ascends into heaven. The disciples are standing there with their mouths open, looking up in the sky. Angels speak to them and say, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from where? From the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. It was at the Mount of Olives that Jesus left. It is to the Mount of Olives that Jesus will return. He's really coming back. And this is something that is being anticipated. It's a real place. He's really coming back to this world. This is a picture of the Mount of Olives looking towards the city of Jerusalem. This is the old city of Jerusalem up here. This right here is the wall around the old city of Jerusalem. This picture is taken from a vantage point on the side of the Mount of Olives looking at Jerusalem from the east. Now, as we're here, you'll notice that there are a lot of rocks. You see all these rocks here. You see these rocks here in front of the wall. Now, what are those rocks? Well, you might think, well, those are just rocks, Pastor. There's just rocks. There's a lot of rocks there. It's a dry place. But these are not just random rocks. These are rocks in cemeteries. This is a cemetery right here. And right in front of the wall to Jerusalem is a cemetery as well. Why would such valuable real estate be given to such large cemeteries? The answer is because of what Jesus is coming to do. The answer is because of what Jesus is coming to do. 
Jews are buried on this side. Why? Because they believe that Messiah is coming. And when he comes, he will land on the Mount of Olives. And when he does, the dead will rise. And so rich Jewish people will be buried on this side of the mountain with their feet facing the city so that when Messiah comes, they will pop right up and follow him in. And why is it that there is a graveyard up here? That is not a Jewish cemetery. That is a Muslim cemetery. Why do Muslim people bury some of their jihadists in this location? It is because they also believe that the Jewish Messiah will approach from that direction. They also understand that the Jewish Messiah is a priest, and no good priest would walk through a graveyard. And so it's a security system, if you will. We could say much more about that, but just know that this real location is right now in this moment anticipating the return of Jesus. He is really coming back. He is really coming back to this place. Now, when he comes, what will he do? Well, the first time he came, he came humble, mounted on a donkey as he approached down the Mount of Olives at Palm Sunday. He came as a baby in Bethlehem. That was his first coming. But when he comes again, he is not coming humble on a donkey, and he's not coming as a baby, meek and mild. He's coming as a warrior king. He comes to judge and to make war. The people that have persecuted his people, he is coming to wage war against. All unrighteousness, he is coming to judge. He comes with a robe that is dipped in blood. What is that referencing? Well, it's referencing of somebody that is coming from the field of battle. Jesus is coming to wage war. He's coming to strike down the nations. He is coming to tread out the winepress of the wrath of the Lord God Almighty. Very vivid pictures of the judgment that Jesus will bring when he comes. He's really coming back. And when he comes the second time, this is what he is going to do. But not only is he coming to judge, but he is also coming to establish a kingdom. He is coming to rule with a rod of iron the nations of this world. Jesus is coming to judge, to wage war, and to rule. This is the description of Jesus at his second coming. Now, you might be asking the question, how do we know that it is Jesus who is coming? I mean, just look at those verses that we read earlier. How many times is Jesus' name mentioned? Not once. So how do we know that it is Jesus who is coming? Well, friends, just look at the description. In, in Revelation 19, he is described a lot of different ways. He's described as one who is faithful and true in Revelation 19, 11. That is exactly how Jesus is identified in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 14. He's described as one who has eyes like a flame of fire. He can pierce through anything, see everything. He's described that way in 1912. That's the same way Jesus was described in Revelation 1, 14. His name is the Word of God in Revelation 19, 13. That's exactly how he is described in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18, written by the same John who authored the book of Revelation. He comes with a sword in his mouth in Revelation 19.15. The same description that he has in Revelation 1.16 and 2.12. He comes to rule with the rod of iron, Revelation 19.15. That is the same description of Jesus in Psalm chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, and in Revelation chapter 12 and verse 5. 
And he is called the title of King of Kings and Lord of Lords in Revelation 19, 16, the same as he is described in 1 Timothy chapter 6 in verse 15. Friends, why is it that they don't just say Jesus is coming back? Why describe him this way? Because, because it's a revelation of who? It's a revelation of Jesus Christ. We are not remembering that some title, some empty suit is coming back, some representative. No, 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 no. We need to remember who is coming back. It is Jesus Christ, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who sees all, who is faithful and true and just, who reveals God to us. He is the one who is coming, and we are living in anticipation of that day. Not only is there a description of Jesus that lets us know who he is, but we do find out a couple of other things about Jesus. It says here in verse 12 that on his head are many diadems. What's a diadem? It's kind of a crown of some sorts. It says here that he has many of them. What does that tell us? It tells us that there is no place beyond his jurisdiction. He doesn't show up with a Jewish crown to rule one Middle Eastern country the size of New Jersey. No, he's got many diadems. He's got the diadem of North America and South America. He's got the diadem of Europe and Africa and Asia and Antarctica. He's got the diadem of Jupiter and Mars and Venus. From the bottom of the ocean to the top of the mountains, there is no place in the universe that he doesn't have the crown of. He sits sovereign over all of it. We need to remember that. Not only do we see that, but we also see that he has a name that is written that only he himself knows. What is that all about? This is so exciting. This is telling us that Jesus is even better than we can describe. I mean, we can use words. Our Bible has a lot of words in it, but it has its limitations. The greatness of our Lord and Savior, the greatness of the one who is coming back is too good even to describe in words. We do our best but they ultimately come up short. And so, friends, we get this reminder that Jesus is coming back. And so what do we do with that? Well, there's some things that we need to remember. The first thing we need to remember is this. Jesus is the king. We talked about this last week, but he is the king. He's not just some other guy. He's not just a religious teacher. He's not just a historical figure. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Therefore, we are to give him glory. We are to worship him. We are to give him our allegiance. We are to trust him above everything. And we are to follow him in obedience in this life. I love what Tony Evans says about this. He says, if you refuse to repent, you will fall into the hands of the living God. And that, as the Bible says, is a terrifying thing. This picture of Christ is presented so that we might give him his due place and we might give him his due worship and obedience. Not only do we see that Jesus is king, but we also must remember that he is sovereign. He's sovereign over every area of our lives. He sees it all, the eyes like fire, and he's sovereign over it all. He has many diadems. Friends, all of us are prone to say, Jesus, you can have this part of my life. You can have my Sunday school life, my church life, but not the rest of my life. He's far greater than that. 
May we open up our financial lives to him. May we open up our romantic lives to him. May we open up our lifestyle to him that we might follow him in obedience to his word in every area of our lives. Friends, Jesus comes back. But there's a second thing we need to see in these verses. Not just that he's coming back, but guess what he does when he comes back? He wins. Jesus wins. Now, apparently I wasn't quite as excited about this, less exclamation points, but still very exciting news. When Jesus comes back, he is going to win. And it's something that is represented throughout this passage. We look even back at verse 11. It says, he sees heaven open and behold a white horse. What does the white horse represent? The white horse represents conquest. When a a general in the ancient world would go and win a conquest, they would come back in parade on a white horse. Jesus doesn't wait until the battle is over. He gets on the horse at the beginning because his victory is so assured. It is so certain. He goes into the battle on the horse of victory. Not only that, but it's so assured that an angel appears in heaven and says, hey, this million-man army that is united to kill the people of God, we are so certain that they're going to be wiped out today. Birds, why don't you gather because there's going to be some cleanup to do on aisle seven. That's how certain the victory of Jesus is. And so the birds are called. The victory is assured. Not only is the victory assured, though, but the victory will be swift. This is not going to be the start of a, of a long battle like we might think of World War II or World War I or the Af- Afghanistan War, something like that. This is a, a quick and a swift conquest. When Jesus shows up, it says that from the, the, his mouth comes a sharp sword with which he will wage this battle. Now, does this mean that Jesus has this sword and he uses that sword to engage in some kind of hand-to-hand or mouth-to-hand combat with the armies of the world? I don't think so. It says that the sword is coming out of his mouth. It's a a picture of the weapon is his word. When Jesus comes, he just says enough. And it's over. The victory comes swiftly. So much so that even though he comes with an army, that army's wearing white, That army is unarmed, not needed. We'll talk more about who the army is in a moment, but we see that the victory is both certain and it comes swiftly. Now, not only that, but the victory is complete. Those enemy armies are are, are gathered together and they're led by this beast, which we know of from earlier in Revelation as the Antichrist, the world leader that is leading this rebellion against God. The, the Antichrist, the, the kings that he has convinced from various nations to gather with him to attack the people of God, they're all going to be gathered up to be judged along with the false prophet, the religious leader, the false religious leader that they're in partnership with. They are all gathered up. They are completely gathered up for judgment. Not only that, but it says that not just the leaders, but also the people that have followed them in 
into this engagement will also be gathered up to be slain. It is a complete victory. And not only is it a complete victory, but also it's a permanent victory. The lake of fire is the location where the beast and the false prophet are thrown. The lake of fire is a a picture of hell. And the first two inhabitants of hell are the false prophet and the beast. The rest awaiting their judgment, we'll get to that later. But the first two in this eternal judgment are those that have led the world astray. Judgment comes. It is assured, it is complete, and it is permanent. But also, it's experienced. This this victory that Jesus wins is experienced. There are people who are going to see it and participate in it and, and enjoy it. Not just those that will be judged by him, but those that will be saved with him. And so, Who are those who are saved? Who is experiencing this victory on the last day? Well, there's a couple of different groups that are identified. One of those groups that is identified are the believers who are in Jerusalem. Remember, there are people of God who are living in that tribulation era who are holed up in Jerusalem who will find their escape through the middle of the mountain. These are those that are talked about in last week's passage, those who have been invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. When Jesus comes back, there are people on the earth who get to see it, and those believers in Jerusalem are celebrating the victory that Jesus has brought them. But also, friends, not just those on the earth, but also there are those who are coming with Jesus. And coming with Jesus are the armies of the Lord. So who are the armies of the Lord? Well, There are a number of different possibilities. In our Bibles, we're told that those who are coming with Jesus are a lot of things. First of all, they're described in 19 verse 15 as being clothed in fine linen, white and pure. And with that description, coming with Jesus and dressed this way, the Bible would tell us there are a number of possibilities of who is being referred to. Could be the tribulation era saints those who have died in this last seven years before Christ has returned, but who had trusted Christ before they died. Those are mentioned in Revelation 7, 13. Or it could be Old Testament believers. Jude verse 14 talks about when Jesus comes back, the Old Testament saints coming with him. Or it could be angels. Matthew chapter 25, verse 31, Jesus himself said, when the Son of Man comes back, angelic armies will be with him. But another possible option is that the armies of heaven is a reference to the church. And the reason why is this description, being clothed in fine linen, white and pure, is the exact description of the bride of Christ, the church, that we saw last week in Revelation 19, verse 8. Now, while I believe all of these folks are coming with Christ at his return, I think that what is emphasized in Revelation 19, verse 15 is the presence of the church with Jesus. Friends, if we have trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, there is a horse waiting for us to return with Jesus in triumph. Given that, we are to be encouraged. We are to be encouraged. And we should be encouraged to trust in Jesus There will come a time where there is no more time. So we should trust Christ while we have time. Repent of our sins. Lean into him 
Trust in his death on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins so that we might be forgiven, so that we might be with him and experience victory instead of judged by him on the day of judgment. And if we have trusted in Christ, then, friends, we get to win. And this is so important for us to think about because we live in a world where we experience a lot of loss. We experience loss of, of, of human life, friends and family and loved ones who, who pass away too soon. We, we experience the loss of disease and loss of function. We experience the loss of aging. We experience the, the, the loss of broken relationships. We experience the loss of, of things that we accumulate and enjoy and then they dissipate overnight. We experience the loss of people that we thought were running with us the race of faith that then have wandered in another direction. And in the midst of the the loss that we experience, we must also be reminded of the victory that is assured. That's why Jesus talks so much about his second coming. It's to remind us of where this is headed. The, The more losses we're experiencing, the more relevant the message of the return of Christ is. 